this sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Recently, the company Chevrolet introduced a new model of their flagship truck, the Chevy Silverado. And I happened to be subjected to the advertisement for it because I was laying on the couch sleepily watching a Washington Commies game. I think. That's what I call them. Uh, and just for irony's sake. Uh, it was your classic Chevy truck commercial, right? Complete with upbeat country music and the arpeggiating banjo, uh, the beautiful white family on the countryside of Utah somewhere with a dirt bike. And the ad shows this family on their beautiful road trip doing all sorts of things. The husband's driving and the rest of the family's asleep in the car. And the voiceover declares that the Chevrolet Silverado has what it takes to do it all. With the multi-flex tailgate and up to 13 available camera views and the optional, if you want to pay more, Z71 off-road package. But the reason why I remember the commercial was the last line, the hook of the advertisement. And it hooked in my ear, and that's why even though half asleep, I filed away in the sermon illustration bank and said, someday this will be a profit to me. And here we are. Here's what the brilliant ad team dreamed of. Any truck can help you make a living, but this one helps you build a life. Woo! Powerful. All of a sudden, the truck took on transcendent value. <laughs> Chevrolet is the latest in a long line of companies and individuals and systems within our world that promise us life-building power through the acquisition of material wealth. Uh, this promise is at least as old as the, as the snake in the Garden of Eden. Ah, the fruit looked beautiful to her eyes. And he said, take, you will acquire a different status, a different knowledge. Jesus Christ and the gospel of the kingdom of God that he and his apostles proclaimed ran directly counter and in protest to the false promises of the false god of money. Money, or in Aramaic, mammon, was named and personified by Jesus as a false god. A, a, a false god that stood in opposition to the true god. He said things like, you cannot serve both god and mammon. You'll hate one and love the other. He said things like, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ proclaimed a different economy, a different means of evaluating what is valuable in life. Out of all the social issues that Jesus talked about, he talked about speech ethics. He did. Sexuality, yes, he talked about that. Violence, yes, he talked about that. There is one, though, that ranks far above the others as Jesus' most explored topic. Yes. That is economics. Yeah. Wealth, money, power, accumulation, generosity, greed. And he did that in a society that was mostly agrarian and simple with widespread poverty. I need to remind you, dear Washingtonians, that you live in the capital city of the most affluent and powerful empire that the world has ever known. We live in the midst of a global economy that boasts a wealth and power that is incomprehensible and unparalleled. 
I recently watched an, inter an interview with our president where he was asked about whether we could provide aid to both Ukraine and Israel. And he said flat out, we're America. We have more money and more power than anyone on the face of the planet throughout time and history. We can do whatever we want. <laughs> it's not about the president. I've heard every president say that in one way or another. It's their job. <laughs> we live in an age where shopping and marketing it is so ubiquitous and invades every nook and cranny of our lives. We live, we live in an age that if you don't have the cash, it's no problem. You can finance your $50 sweater from the GAC. And yet I feel that if you observe most American Christian ministries and movements, you would not get the impression that the greatest social threat to the church today is mammon. And I'm not going to assume in this passage or in this, this preaching moment, a holier-than-thou posture. Because this influence of this materialistic age, it affects every single one of us. And to think that it doesn't is akin to, let's say, this man who lives in a factory town that pumps out pollutants all day, and this man walks and runs around the town, and he assumes that it doesn't affect his lungs. We are that man. We are living and walking and breathing in a materialistic greedy, selfish world. We are often walking around impaired, weighed down, anxious, overscheduled, over-indebted, robbing Peter to pay Paul, another, unable to breathe freely, and we're not taking into account the dangers and pollutants of our environment. So I'm going to minister to myself, if that's okay today, and then by extension I'll minister to you. Because in the midst of this false and empty wealth that the world proclaims, the gospel of Jesus holds out a promise of true wealth. Not a prosperity gospel, a gospel that guarantees you financial success, but yet a gospel that guarantees you true prosperity, true life, true wealth. So first I want to look at false wealth, then I want to look at true wealth. So first, false wealth. Here we are in the book of Timothy, 1 Timothy. Now, Timothy is a young pastor in the city of Ephesus. He's trained up by Paul, and he finds himself as a young pastor with a good bit of leadership responsibility without a good bit of leadership experience. And he's trying to minister to all these churches in the city amidst other influential leaders that are saying other things. Paul says that there's this group of false teachers. And ultimately, what this group of teachers is after is not really God. Or not really God's kingdom or the upside down economy of the kingdom. What these teachers are after is financial profit. They're positioning and posturing themselves uh, using pointless and stupid debates about words and quarrels and divisions. And why are they doing this? So that they can gain control over people, end up on top and have spiritual authority. Why? Because oftentimes if you have spiritual authority, you can have economic authority. If you get to people's hearts, you can get to people's wallets. So these teachers are in it for the payout. They get into religion to make a buck. But Paul counters this very strongly. And in our passage today, he's gonna to do two subversive things. He's gonna take the word prophet, and he's gonna take the word rich. And what he's gonna do is flip them on their head. He says that these false teachers imagine that godliness is a means of gain. And that word gain can also be translated profit. Our passage, yes, is going to start with this word play, but, but Paul says, listen, here's what is being put out there as profit. 
But let me tell you about true profit. Verse 6 and 7, godliness with contentment is the great profit of life. For we brought nothing into the world and we can't take anything out of the world. Paul says there is a great prophet out there. That's what you're chasing. It's a, there is a great prophet for you. It's not in mammon though. It's not in money. The great prophet is in God and finding contentment, which we're going to explore deeply in a moment. And what Paul does is he clarifies something. He takes the, the shine and shimmer of a materialistic world or a profit-driven world, and he says something stark. He says, death is coming. Your life is limited and fragile. You came into the world not having or grasping anything, and guess what? Death is going to come, and you can't take anything with you. The Egyptians used to pack all the possessions inside the tombs of the mummies for the afterlife, and we open them up thousands of years later, and the possessions are still there. We begin to see something here in this passage, is that, it's, it's that these false teachers, it's not just that they happen to be rich, but they have a craving to be rich. It's not just that they happen to wake up through whatever reasons or happen to have a paycheck come their way. The passage today is going to address the rich. There are some, the New Testament says, and the whole Bible says that for some reasons, not all good reasons, some broken reasons, wind up and wake up with more money in the bank account, more generational wealth. But the, the thing that the Bible is getting after, the passage is getting after today, is the desire of the heart. What does the heart long for? And what Paul says about these teachers is that they are chasing after the prophet. Richness is not necessarily evil, but the desire to be rich is evil. For whatever benevolent reason someone might give for wanting to be rich, it still puts your soul in great danger. And here's what Paul says. Money, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, many senseless and harmful desires. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Now, oftentimes this, this passage is is misquoted to say that the love of money is the root of all evil. What the passage actually says is that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Meaning, within the root of the heart, there is this root desire for the love of money. And what happens is that gives birth to all sorts of things. See, the love of money, the love of greed and profit, it tends to amplify other types of evil that separate us from God and cause us to harm our neighbors. And so the fruit of this love of money is evil. The church has given us, I, I want to explore this because I want to add some tangibility to that verse. What is Paul really saying? How does the love of money really amplify and fuel other kinds of evil in the world? The church has had a list of sins that passed down from generation to generation. It's not the once for all given list. But you've probably heard of it. It is the seven deadly sins, right? Given to us from the history of the church. And what I want to do is I want to take those seven deadly sins and see how the love of money amplifies other kinds of evils. The seven deadly sins are these. Pride, greed or covetousness, lust, envy, gluttony, anger, and sloth. First of all, the love of money causes pride. And amplifies pride. That's why Paul says to the rich later in the passage, charge them not to be haughty. Because here's the thing, when we love money, we accumulate money to buy possessions, not just for their functionality, 
or for what they can do for other people in the world. We buy things as a sign of our status before others. We want to feel the feel of the newest gadget in our hands or the highest quality clothes in our bodies, not just for the function of the phone or the warmth of the jacket. It is for what it says to others about who we are. And as we acquire more and more wealth, and as we uh, ascend the ladder of status in the world, we become more and more out of touch with other people, particularly neighbors who live on the margins, who do not rely upon possessions for their meaning in life. And pride is at the very heart of sin, because pride is a rejection of a dependence on the Creator God. And that's why Moses said to the nation of Israel when, when they were about to come into the promised land, about to come into the land flowing with milk and honey. Listen to what Moses said to Israel. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. He says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. But the love of money deceives the one who wants to be rich and makes them think that they have acquired their status of wealth just by their own power. And you see, the love of money fuels pride. But it doesn't just fuel pride, it fuels greed. We accumulate money and more money so that we can keep others from it and store up more and more for ourselves. How many scandals every single year are a representation of this fact, that those who love riches love more and more riches? The love of money causes you to want more money and to lie and to commit acts of fraud to ensure that you will always have a never-ending stream of money. And here's what the data says. Well-researched, well-documented. The more money you make, the less percentage-wise you give away. The more money you acquire, the more you will hold back for yourself, invest in your own needs, and buy your own stuff. The less money you have, statistically, the higher percentage point you will give away. And that's because the love of money fuels greed. Thirdly, lust. The love of money makes people devalue other people. And they become so full of pride that they assume they can have anything or anyone they want. Those who love money become so self-important, they assume everyone wants them as much as they want them. How much of the sex trafficking industry and pornography industry is driven by the love of profit, profiting off other people's bodies? It's a trap. And at the root of it is the love of money. The love of money fuels envy because those who are lovers of money will will always be threatened by others and the things they have. Because there's always a bigger fish in the pond, as they say. We get nice things, but then we see a picture of someone else with the nicer thing. And our hearts are filled with envy and covetousness. The love of money fuels gluttony. Because those who are lovers of money tend to buy more and more things that they don't need. They tend to fill up their plates with food they they aren't even really hungry for. They begin to eat meals with rich fare all the time. All while while their neighbors go without any food at all. They build bigger and bigger storehouses to store the excess, all while others don't have anything. We live in a gluttonous world in so many ways. The love of money fuels anger. 
because the love of money makes us proud and comfortable. And when that comfort is impinged or impeded by normal mundane things of life, disagreement, conflict, long lines at the grocery store, waiting in traffic, the ticket counter, what happens? We get angry. Because we believe the money, the lie that money tells us that life is all about us. Life is all about your comfort. Life is all about your privilege. The love of money fuels anger. And lastly, the love of money fuels sloth or laziness. Because it teaches us that we should be able to get our way and that we get incensed over time and we get lazy. We forget how to suffer for others, sacrifice for others, wash feet, clean toilets, type in the spreadsheets, bag the groceries, change the diapers. Because those things begin to feel beneath us. We become selfish and angry people. The love of money makes us sometimes rich in mammon, but spiritually bankrupt. And when you put it all together, do you see that? You begin to see the great spiritual and real danger that comes from the love of money and profit in the world. And we're left realizing that the image of wealth and profit, as Paul says, is a sham. It's not actually true profit. It's not actually true wealth. It is false, and it leads people to destroying their lives and destroying the lives of their neighbors. The love of money breeds oppression. The love of money breeds selfishness. And in light of that, as Paul makes clear, now we can see more clearly the true wealth, the true riches, and the true profit that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. So let's look at that, true wealth. Going back to verse 3, or verse six, but godliness with contentment is a great profit. Godliness with contentment. Let's explore that a little bit. It's a formula of sorts. And the two words have to be held together. And it begins with godliness. It begins with knowing God, seeking God, wanting to love God, wanting to honor God, to give thanks to God, to live in the ways of God. That's godliness. Godliness is wanting my words to sound like God's words. It's wanting my actions to look like God's actions. It's wanting my thoughts to be after God's own thoughts. And it's knowing that the love of God is enough. Because the love of God is going to be the thing that meets me on the other side of death. I didn't bring anything into this world. I can't take anything out of this world. And then Paul uses the word contentment. Now, this is an interesting word. There's a couple of words for it. But if you go look it up in the Greek, in the language, it's the same word that the Stoic philosophers used to use. And it actually technically can mean a kind of self-sufficiency. Because here's what the Stoics taught. They, they taught people to ground themselves and show no wavering emotion. You know, if riches came your way, if pleasure came your way, if, if pain came your way, then you were to be stone-faced, and still, you can endure all things. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not after a self-sufficiency. Paul is after a God-sufficiency. Paul, what he is getting at is detaching ourselves from the things of this world, our possessions in this life, and attaching ourselves to God. Paul is meaning to say that if other things come into our life, rich fare for the feast, even a bigger paycheck, then we can give thanks for those things, yes, but we do not attach the meaning of our life to those things. 
We do not attach the hope of our life to this thing. What we attach our life to is God. It is the provision of who he is as creator and savior and redeemer. That is the grounding of Paul's joy. One commentator says this, Paul has learned to be content not because he has an inner stoic superhuman strength or because circumstances have been good to him. Paul's contentment is rooted in a faith that asserts the need for total reliance on an all-powerful God. The contentment that is of great profit is one that seeks its security not in worldly riches but in God. That's why to bring in another passage in Philippians 4, where Paul famously says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Y'all remember that passage? He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. You see what he's saying? I know I know how to live when my bank account's at 300 and I know how to live when my bank account's at 3,000. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So y'all thought that that was a Bible verse right before the basketball game or something. No. (laughs) Paul is saying that there are seasons of our life where everything is going right, where we are hitting on all cylinders. Let me tell you something, Grace Mosaic. In so many ways, our season right now is a season of plenty. I can show you the giving statements and tell you that. I can show you the attendance numbers and I tell you that. And I give thanks for it. It's exciting. It's a gift from God. We're raising money for a building. Hallelujah. That won't always be the case. The attendance numbers will not always be high. The bank account numbers will not always be high. And the same is true for the church as through your life. God is going to take us into seasons of suffering. And the question that will be put on all of our hearts individually and communally is where are we putting our trust in? Where is our contentment found? And Paul is saying, I know how to be brought low. I know how to be raised to the heights of abundance. And that's through knowing God. Because that's the thing that doesn't change. Hunger and plenty. God's still the same. God knows you need food and clothes, all right? (laughs) Over and over again, the scripture tells you that. Those are the things you need. Get it straight. Learn to distinguish between the things you need and the things you want. Jesus says, therefore, don't be anxious, saying, what am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? He says, for the nations seek after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. But we don't believe Jesus. We aren't ready to to take the step of faith to take him seriously. We always are hedging our bets with Jesus. Oh, that's cute, Jesus. That's very nice. I'll hang that verse on my wall, but I will not put it on my heart. I will not rearrange my life and my possessions and the desires of my heart to align with yours. I need to make sure I'm really going to be safe. But Jesus is saying, let go. Take the safety harness off and fall into the river of my love, and you will be carried. Let me tell you something. If you pursue the kingdom, God will take care of you. I'm not telling you this promise just on my will alone. I'm letting you know Jesus' promise. It's your choice whether you want to believe it or not. That's Jesus' promise. And if we don't believe it, it's our choice. But let me tell you something. If you try him, he will not fail you. Paul challenges the rich in the passage not to set their hopes on riches. Why? 
because it's a foolish decision. Riches are uncertainty. Set their hopes on God, who richly provides you everything to enjoy. Now we saw what, what Paul did with profit, right? He turned it on his head. He said, financial profit is not profit. <laughs> profit is the kingdom of God. Profit is the way of God. Profit is the love of God. Here Paul is going to do this with the word rich. Do you see that? He challenges the rich to not trust in riches, but on the God who richly, uses the same root word, richly provides everything we need. What Paul is, Paul is letting the, the Timothy know and, and everyone reading this letter know that there is one rich being in the universe. It's God. Everything is a gift. The breath in your lungs, did you pay for it? No. Did you work for it? No. But it came again this morning. Your health, your life, your money, your things, all is gift. All is gift from Creator to be stewarded and given away for His glory and for the purpose of love. Your salvation, gift. Your freedom from guilt and shame, gift. That's the gospel. For God so loved the world that He gave. He's a giver. My spiritual ledger was full of a long list of debts. And I had overdrafted over and over again because of my sin. But He canceled the record of debts that stood against me. That is the gospel. And now nothing is able to separate me and from you from the love of God that is Christ Jesus. Not death, not famine, nor suffering. And, and that is why the gospel of Jesus Christ changes our view of everything, including possessions. And all of a sudden, possessions can be something not to be grasped after or sought after, but if they come our way, to be received as a gift and a gift to be shared. Because we have tasted of something that is actually satisfying. Paul uses the language, truly life. Take hold of that which is truly life. He continues that the rich, those who are materially well off, which in the relative scale of the world is most of us in this room compared to the ancient Near Eastern world, they are to do good and to be rich. There it is again. <laughs> you want to be rich? Be rich in good works. Be generous, ready to share, thus storing for yourself treasure for yourself as a good foundation for the future so that you can take hold of that which is truly life. Paul says, you want to be rich? All right, good. Let me show you what true richness looks like. Start doing beautiful things in the world. You will be the richest person around, and others will know that you have the true kind of wealth. See, the love of, mo the, the love of money was a root of all kinds of evils. Well, the love of God in His kingdom is a root of all kinds of beautiful fruit in the world. The church doesn't just give us the seven deadly sins. They also give us the seven life-giving virtues that counter those deadly sins. So, so the call is not to be rich in pride. It's to be rich in humility. It can never fault you to be humble, people of God. It'll always profit you. And you will always make an investment for the good life when you choose humility over pride. Don't be rich in greed. Be rich in charity. Be ready to give things away. Give your time away. Give your energy away. Give your money away. Others will know and be magnified by your true love of love. Don't be rich in lust. Be rich in chastity. Because you know how to deny yourself. And you know how not to take advantage of another person's body or life or things. Don't be rich in envy. Be rich in gratitude. And therefore, I can escape the rat race of this life. 
I can escape the rat race that the marketing schemes invite me into, and I can just accept the simple pleasure of waking up today as an abundant gift from God and find His presence there. Don't be rich in gluttony, be rich in self-control. I won't be enslaved by anything. I don't have to have more. I can deal with a little, and it's okay. Don't be rich in anger, be rich in patience. Don't be rich in sloth, be rich in diligence. Knowing how to be committed for the long haul to work for the good of other people. I wanna explore, as I come to a close, this practice that the church has also handed down through time. We like to talk about spiritual disciplines. There is a spiritual discipline, however, that doesn't get a lot of airtime today. Now, y'all probably heard of the, the disciplines of prayer, scripture reading, and Bible study, maybe confession, all the things. But in the, but in the American church, I think there's one vastly underexplored spiritual discipline. And that is the discipline of simplicity. Simplicity. Now, simplicity is the practice historically of learning how to simplify our lives and detach ourselves from an abundance of material things and our hope in those things. The, the great spiritual writer Adele Calhoun says that this simplicity creates margins and spaces and openness in our lives. It honors the resources of our small planet. It offers us the leisure of tasting the present moment. Simplicity asks us to let go of the tangle of once so that we can receive the simple gifts of life that cannot be taken away. Yeah. Sleeping, eating, walking, giving, and receiving love. The benefits that we take for granted are amazing gifts. Yeah. And the discipline of simplicity invites us into the gift that God gives us every day. Now, I'm going to share with you all like 10 things. All right. <laughs> And as I share with you, uh, you're going to be troubled. I'm going to just confess it to you. You're going to be troubled and I'm going to be troubled. This isn't law, but it is wisdom to counter and learn how to live a life in protest to this polluted environment we, we find ourselves in. This comes from the great spiritual writer Richard Foster, who has probably more than anyone in the last two generations written profoundly about the discipline of simplicity. So I'm going to explore it for you. It's going to hurt a little bit, but that's okay. We can be hurt together. Y'all ready? First, buy things for their usefulness rather than their status. He says cars should be bought for their utility, not for their prestige. Consider riding a bicycle. When you're considering an apartment or a condo or a house, thought should be given to livability rather than how much it will impress others. Don't have more living space than is reasonable. After all, who needs seven rooms for two people? He says, consider your clothes. Most people have no need for more clothes. They buy not because they need clothes, but because they want to keep up with the fashions. He says, hang the fashions. Buy what you need. Wear clothes until they are worn out. Stop trying to impress people with your clothes and impress them with your life. He said, not me. <laughs> Secondly, reject anything that is producing an addiction in you. Yes. Learn how to distinguish between a real psychological need, like cheerful surroundings, and an addiction. Oh, he, he's going to come for us. Eliminate or cut down on the use of addictive non-nutritional drinks. Alcohol, coffee, tea, Coca-Cola, and so on. <laughs> Any of the media you find that you cannot live without, get rid of it. 
this writing back in the 80s, radios, stereos, magazines, videos, newspapers, books. If money has a grip on your heart, give some away. Feel the inner release. Simplicity is not is, is freedom, it's not slavery. Yes. See, he says, third, develop a habit of giving things away. He said, if you find yourself becoming attached to some possession or to money itself, just give it away. Adele Calhoun, back to her, she says, in her own life, she remembers that her mother once commented how she used to be at her, her mother used to be at her friend's house and she used to comment all the time on how much she liked a tablecloth in her friend's home. And then one day she was shocked when her friend just ripped it off the table and gave it to her on the spot. And she said that experience has worked its way into her own life. Because this practice of giving things away prepares us for the day where we will have to give it all away. She, she says, aging has always been about simplifying and letting go. Sooner or later, we realize we can't manage all the stuff and activity anymore. We just let it go. And this practice of letting go embraces simplicity in one way that we are preparing ourselves for the death to come. There will be a day where we have no possessions left and we leave this life. I remember when my, my grandfather was a wealthy man, and I remember being a child and being in his house, and his, his house was full of all the nicest things. He lived at the top of society. He had the richest clothes and had uh, a lot of beautiful possessions. But I remember at the end of his life too, visiting him, and his whole life could fit into a suitcase. And I have to remember that. You have to remember your own death. Don't be fooled by this world. Why don't you go ahead and start giving away stuff now? What have you got to lose if you know God? Fourthly, he says, refuse to be propagandized by the custodians of modern gadgetry. Hmm. He says, time-saving devices almost never save time. Beware of the promise it will pay for itself in six months. Most gadgets are built to break down and wear out, and they complicate our lives rather than enhance it. Can I get an amen somewhere? Come on. Not to mention how our gadgets unnecessarily strain our energy resources of this planet. The United States has less than 6% of the world's population, but consumes about 33% of the world's energy. Why? Accumulation of stuff. Fifth, learn to enjoy things without owning them. Owning them, owning things is an obsession in our culture. If we own it, we feel we can control it. And if we can control it, it can give us more pleasure. This idea is an illusion. Share things. Enjoy the beach without feeling you have to buy a piece of it. Enjoy public parks and libraries. Come on, libraries. Six, develop a deeper appreciation for the creation. Get close to the earth. Walk whenever you can. Listen to the birds. Enjoy the texture of grass and leaves. Smell the flowers. Marvel in the rich colors everywhere that God has given to us. Eighth, and this one's tricky. Reject anything that breeds the oppression of other people. He says this. This is a difficult question and it's sensitive, but we, we must face it. Do we sip our coffee and eat our bananas at the expense of exploiting Latin American peasants? In a world of limited resources, does our lust for wealth mean the poverty of others? Should we buy products that are being made, uh, forcing people into dull assembly line jobs? There's not a clean or easy answer for it, but we must interrogate these realities. We must relationally connect ourselves to the people through which we get our products. We must see things as God sees them. 
And finally, the practice of simplicity helps us shun anything that distracts us from first seeking the kingdom of God. He says it's so easy to lose focus on the pursuit of legitimate, even good things, jobs, position, status, family, friends, security, but these quickly become, for us, a priority over the kingdom of God revealed in Jesus Christ. May God give you and me the courage and the wisdom and the strength to always hold the kingdom as our highest priority in this life, because it is, it is what we stake our lives upon. It is the foundation of our hope for a future. Paul says, lay up for yourself, through, Jesus says this too, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where I am. Do not lay them up on the earth where they rot and they become unfashionable in six months and you end up hating the thing you spent so much money on in the first place. Invest in the things that matter. The love of God, the love of neighbor. We do all of this in imitation of Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might became, became, become rich. Jesus made the harrowing descent that relinquished heavenly privileges for the life of human limitations. The second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, exchanged heaven for earth, power for weakness, glory for obedience and suffering, success in human eyes for faithfulness in God's eyes, and life for death. As we follow this downward path, we need to be reminded of it over and over again. And that's what I'm here to do, to do for you and for me today. That Jesus calls us to a different way of life. He calls us to true freedom. How many of you want to be free from the love of money? Is that what you want? You can find that in Jesus. And you can find that in his kingdom. And you can find a different economy where we learn how to value things that are truly valuable in God's eyes and know the true profit that comes with godliness and contentment. Amen? Amen. Jesus, as we hear this word from you today by the power of your Holy Spirit, we confess that we need your help to live it out. We need your work in our lives. We need your activating grace that you would plant seeds in this moment of encountering your word that would actually bear fruit in our lives. Help us to heed this discipline of simplicity as a community and as individuals. Give us the freedom to live freely and to not be attached to things or to people or to the, to, to the status that they afford us. Help us to attach our lives to your love, we pray. Amen. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.